This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, GYC. It's a long way from Australia, but it's especially long way from that back curtain to here, I tell you. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 5 and verse 8, and then I'm going to pray. John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus speaking, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 8, Jesus goes on to explain a little bit about that rebirth. And part of that rebirth, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As I share my testimony, as I've been asked to do this afternoon, in case any of my words are misunderstood, it needs to be very clear that the things that I share are things that I have been a part of, but these are things that the Spirit has done. This is the way the Spirit has blown, you could say, in my life. And it's my prayer this afternoon that the Spirit might blow through me into you so that we can go into the world and the winds of revolution that the Holy Spirit always wants to accomplish through us would begin to blow with greater force than they have in recent times. I'm going to kneel. You can stay seated. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you are a great God and you gave us a great commission. But you never gave the Great Commission without having a promise of your Spirit right there beside it. And so, Lord, as I share my interactions and my involvement in that Great Commission that has brought such joy, such fulfillment to my life, I pray that your Spirit would move into the lives of each person here and here, through the internet and in, in future places, through future mediums. And just pray, Lord that you would use this message as I've been praying for months to revive a missionary culture in our church. May it start here at GYC. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me that you're in the Middle East. I'm not going to name the country because I wish to return there. Imagine you're in the Middle East. You're down the street shopping for the men it's you down the street shopping because in this particular country, it's definitely Islamic, so Islamic that the women don't go out in public and, and do business transactions. So you've been sent down the street by your lovely wife to get the groceries for, for the house. You're in the grocery store and you're looking past the foreign script at the pictures on the packaging because you can't read the script. You're definitely not going to read the ingredients list here. And as you're concentrating, making your decisions in the, in the foreign store, your attention is grabbed by a voice, one of the few people that you know in this valley. Says your name and says, we've got five minutes to be at the madras or the school. You've been invited to speak to all the staff and students. Now this town that you're in in the Middle East 
just happens to be one of the foremost centers for Islamic education in the world. The leading imam attached to this school is ranked frighteningly close to the top of the list of 500 most influential Muslims in the world. And so as you travel via motorbike at great speeds to the seminary, where you're going to share with the students and staff there, you speak to the, this messenger that's been sent to get you, and who will also be your translator, and you say, what is it that I'm expected to speak about? And he says calmly, whatever's on your heart. <laughs> See, Arab hospitality doesn't always have punctuality, and it, in this situation, it didn't have communication and planning. And so, tongue-in-cheek, I thought to myself, thanks. I'm just about to speak with 800 plus of the most influential, or the people that will become future leaders in the world of Islam, and you've just helped me gain perfect clarity on what it is that I'm to say. What would you say in that situation? What would you do? You arrive and you're ushered into the front row and you've sat down just moments before you hear your English name amidst all of the Arabic introductions and you know that it's your time to speak. You go up to the front with your translator and you sit on the carpet like they do. On your right, is one of these most influential Muslims in the world. On your left is your translator and you're given a microphone. You haven't had time to plan what you're gonna say. You've only just had time to pray. What would you say in this situation? What would you do? I'm not sure which makes me more nervous, speaking in front of 800 Muslims or speaking here today with five minutes planning or six months planning. But here I am, and this is a situation that my wife and I found ourselves in last year. We had the pleasure and the opportunity to travel to the Middle East, and we were doing humanitarian work. Um, but this is a situation we found ourselves in, because whatever we do in our lives, we've decided to do it with the intention of sharing wherever and whenever we can. Now. I've asked you what you would do in this situation, and many of you are probably saying, I don't know, I just hope I don't find myself in that situation tomorrow. Well, eight years ago, I, would, I had no idea what to do in that situation. You couldn't have convinced me by any measure that I would find myself in that sort of scenario. Eight years ago, on the 11th of December, I was baptized. That was the same day that I graduated from Arise. And eight years ago, I began to live the sort of life that Christ wants us to. I gave my life to him and to the service of his church. but I hadn't been raised an Adventist. How does a non-Adventist end up at a rise being baptized on graduation day? Well, I was raised in a home in Australia with a great family. 
not a Christian family even per se, definitely not an Adventist family, but a great family. And one of the reasons I say this is because my parents saw the value of raising us in a a country living type situation. And until you've grown up in that and lived in that environment, you don't realise the impact that has in moulding your character. And I'm thankful for that upbringing. This upbringing, along with the influence of my grandmother, gave me a great love for the outdoors and for nature, and that was one of my passions as a young person before I was an Adventist. Now, my first exposure to missions, which has later become a passion in my life, and specifically missions to the Muslim world, and when I say missions, just so it's understood um, by yourselves, and if if a Muslim ever ends up watching or hearing this, Missions to me is giving people a clear revelation of biblical faith, a clear understanding so that they can make decisions for themselves. My first exposure to missions was at a Catholic high school. The homilies that were given there by the priests made an impression upon me about service and I even responded to one of the appeals one day to go to the Pacific Islands and help this Catholic order that my school belonged to to do mission work and confusingly my interest was never followed up but I graduated from Catholic high school and three months after graduating I began a backpacking trip like many Australians do We grow up seeing all these famous sites on television, but they're just so far away. So we finish school and we book a ticket, we go overseas and we stay out of the country as long as we can to get our money's worth out of the ticket. So for 11 months, I traveled through the UK, Scandinavia, Europe and North Africa just to see the world. But it didn't take long before I grew tired of seeing this famous site and that famous site, taking a picture and getting on the next train. And the same thoughts that had plagued me through high school about futility. See, I thought a lot like the book of Ecclesiastic reads, even though I hadn't read it. And I began to yearn to do something more meaningful, and so I started to look for opportunities to volunteer in environmental causes. But I never found something that fit because they all wanted you to pay for the privilege of volunteering because that's how they'd raise money for their projects. So I didn't get involved in service then. But once I returned to Australia, um, my uncle, who had recently become a Seventh-day Adventist, invited me to go on a mission trip with him. And it was a mission trip organised through OCI, um, who have a booth here, and I'd encourage you to visit there, because that was a, a pivotal point in my life. The young people that I met there were the sort of people that I'd been looking for. People that had meaning in life and people that were helping others. Disinterested benevolence, Spirit of Prophecy calls it. And when I spent time with these people in Africa, seeing them serve, I intended just to be there for three weeks and then take off travelling around the rest of Africa, just using these Christians, in a sense, to have a safe place to go back to if anything went wrong. But God had other plans. I ended up driving from Zambia, where the mission trip was, all the way to South Sudan to set up an agricultural project with Jabel Busel and Caleb Knowles, who run Frontline Builders. And from an early age, they'd been in the mission field supporting global mission pioneers and frontline workers who were planting churches but didn't have facilities, and they would go along and help 
And in this instance, we were going to set up an agricultural project. And the impact that those guys my age, selflessly serving in Africa, had upon me was profound because they would rise early each morning and they'd sit by the fire. We were sleeping on a concrete floor in a, in a church that they had built. They'd sit by the fire and they'd read. And seeing them serve others developed in me an interest in what it was that made them do what they did. And I began to ask questions and they began to point me towards a rise, thinking that my interest was, was enough that I could handle as a non-Adventist going to a, a Bible college of that nature. Now, before that trip, uh, before I'd finished backpacking in Europe, I'd had one experience with Muslims in the, the north of Sweden. And I'd arrived in a train station. The train was late and I'd missed my connecting bus. And I was just planning to sleep because I was on a shoestring budget in the train station there. But there was a problem. There was three Algerians that were in the train station and they asked me where I was going to sleep. Now they spoke Swedish and Arabic and I only spoke English. So just through gesturing, we had this conversation that I was going to sleep in here and they said, no, this closes at nine o'clock. I said, well, I'll sleep outside and they just flat out refused to accept that because there were several feet of snow outside. That wasn't an issue because I'd been camping around the place and I had all the necessary equipment, but in their hospitality, that was just unacceptable. So they convinced me to follow them to their apartment, and this is in the year 2003, post 9-11 world. So as I follow these three North African Muslims to their place, I'm thinking this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and I'm sizing them up thinking, I've got everything on my back, my passport, my money, my food, my clothes, everything that I have here in Europe. And they could easily pull me in, take my bag, push me out. These are the thoughts that I had, but as soon as we entered their home, they treated me with a hospitality that none of us deserve. That fresh, hot Arabic bread, a warm bed, a hot shower. And when their brother came home, who did speak English, we began to converse about many things and finally in the wee hours of the morning, while the midnight sun was still up, I said, I'm going to sleep. Don't you guys ever sleep? And they said, well, we're waiting to pray. And I asked if I could watch that. And I sat down in their prayer room and picked the only place that I shouldn't sit and they asked me to move because they didn't want to be praying towards me. <laughs> and I learned that, that lesson there. And as I watched them pray in the early hours of the morning, and they did that because their prayer times are set by the solar cycle, and at the midnight sun they had to be up, it was about two in the morning. Now after watching that, I went to bed and left early the next day to get my, my bus out of there. But that left a deep impression upon me, and I believe the Lord used that experience and the impressions and the experiences, the interactions I had with Muslims in North Africa, in Egypt and Morocco, traveling around as an 18-year-old. In Egypt, I was there for three weeks with my 16-year-old brother, and we were just free and enjoying the company and, and seeing the sights. But that put within me an interest in the Muslim world, and the Lord started to prepare a worker before I'd even given my life to him for a work that desperately needs workers. And so, 
the Lord had been moving in my life even before Arise, but it was Arise that I got into the scriptures and I saw that full picture of, of Christ and I gave my life to him and to his church. Now, what I didn't realize when I made a decision to attend Arise on a concrete floor in Africa when I was in this delirious fever of malaria. So I understand what Pastor Shin's saying about that mental clarity you get when you're in the, the malaria fever. I decided to go to Arise not knowing what it was. I thought it was four months going from Genesis to Revelation. So I was quite surprised when they said that in the third week we'd be going door knocking. I hadn't signed up for that. I'd never received a personal Bible study at that point, let alone given one, but I found myself on the doors in Michigan looking for people that I could give Bible studies to. And there's a principle here that I don't want you to miss, and it's something that I see all the way through my experience with Christ. When you get involved, you get equipped. When you get involved, you get prepared. The interactions and the relationships that I've had with Muslims in the interfaith work that I've been involved in, knocking on doors and giving Bible studies before I'd ever received a Bible study personally, the Lord taught me what I needed as I needed it. If you sit on the sidelines saying, when I'm ready, I'll go, you'll never go. As soon as you go, you will find that the Lord takes you through A to get you to B. And once you've done B, he'll open up opportunity C and you'll be prepared for that because of it. And that was my experience in the Middle East when I'm sitting there next to this prominent scholar with all of these future leaders of Islam. I knew what to say because I got involved at the beginning. Do what is at hand and the Lord will open up avenues for you to do things that you would never imagine yourself doing. And that's the abundant life and that's the joy of the Lord that he's inviting us into, is those sharing experiences. Again at Arise, took a class with AFM and they did this illustration where they divided the class up into all the unreached people groups. And at the end of that illustration, we could see how many Muslims are in the world by the, the class members that were standing over here and all the Buddhists over here. And they said, which people group would you go to? And instantly, without thinking, I just thought I would go to the Muslims. And it's because those experiences before arise that I came to that. Now, it wasn't until my second year of Bible work that another Bible worker, another Australian and myself, we started to talk because he was continually running into Muslims as he went door to door. And we were curious, how do you share our faith in a clear way with a Muslim? And as we started to ask around, we found that there was this peculiar disinterest and apathy towards the subject. And it's sadly a pattern that I've noticed is that as Adventists, we are so enthralled with the signs of the times in Matthew 24 and studying the news and, and seeing the fulfillment of the signs of the times and sharing them with people, sending emails to each other about the latest article of what the Pope's doing that we forget to get involved or we neglect to get involved in the one sign of the time that we can have anything to do with. And that is Matthew 24, verse 14, 
where it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness and then the end will come. That's our business. That's what we've been called to do. And so let's get involved in that. And as we get involved in that, the character that you need to get through those other signs of the times that are coming, that are upon us now, that are going to intensify closer towards the end, that's where you develop that character, is when you participate in the one sign of the time that you've got anything to do with, that you can influence in any way. So with this lack of instruction that we were finding in the Adventist community who lived amongst these Muslims and had just never thought that it would be part of Matthew 28 or Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7 that the gospel should go to the Muslims as well, we thought the best way for us to learn how to reach a Muslim, how to communicate clearly what the Bible says about the character of God and the way we should relate to him, was to go to a mosque. And so after weeks of prayer, we began to go to a mosque one day a week. It was our one day off as Bible workers. And we prayed before we went the first time. We just opened the phone book and found a mosque and we went. And we prayed that we'd meet the right person. And our first experience in a mosque was this. The first person we met was an answer to that prayer. He made us feel welcome. He asked us who we were. We said we're Seventh-day Adventists. He'd never heard of that. And as we started to explain some of the few things that we knew that we had in common, he looks at us and he says, so you're a Muslim? <laughs> we said, well, no, we're Seventh-day Adventists. But he toured us through the mosque. He's, a, he's the kind of man that you would pay good money to be a greeter. He... he gave us a, a tour of the mosque, he explained the service as we went through it, and before we left that day, he made sure that we met all of the elders and the imam of that mosque. And once again, as you do in the Muslim world, we ended up sitting on the carpet with all the leaders of this community, and he rehearsed that conversation that we had when we first walked into the mosque in front of all these leaders. And they would say, hold on, why, why do you not eat pork? And why do you abstain from alcohol? And where do you get this belief in the judgment and creation? And we shared with them that each of our beliefs comes out of the Bible. And that was surprising to them because of the example and the, the demonstration of biblical faith that they see in the rest of Christianity. And guess what they said? You're good Muslims. You're better Muslims than many of those that come to worship at this mosque. And so that was our first experience with Muslims, knowing nothing more than what you know right now about sharing your faith with a Muslim. Another experience that we had, and this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where we transitioned from one day a week in that last half of my second year of Bible working into full-time interfaith work in this area and we went to the largest uh, conference in North America for Muslims. Tens of thousands of Muslims gather there uh, once a year and have something very similar to GYC. Workshops, uh, prayer rooms, plenary sessions and as we got to know people in the, the exhibit area they got to know us and we had this you're a Muslim conversation many times 
And some of them saw an opportunity that if we could just happen to run into one of their most prominent speakers, that there's a good chance we could become Muslim. And so they made sure that we ran into him in the aisles. And we had a conversation with him and he ended up running late for the plenary session that he was to deliver before tens of thousands of Muslims and many more through television. And when he stood up the front to speak, he shared that he just had a conversation with two Seventh-day Adventist brothers and that we were brothers in his mind against a common enemy and that that enemy is evil. And when my Australian colleague and I heard that, we thought, if these are the kind of responses that we can get from one day a week, our one day off as Bible workers, what could we achieve if we were to do this full time? And so we began by faith, uh, interfaith ministry, and I was involved in that for going on six years, just until September last year when I moved back to Australia. And one of the experiences that I had doing this interfaith work was to go and live with 50 Muslims for a period of two months. It was an Arabic language intensive at an Islamic school here in North America. It's since become the first accredited Islamic school in the nation. And living with 50 Muslims there was just such a sweet time of fellowship, especially in Berkeley, California, where the outside influences are very different than the values that we hold in common with Muslims. And spending that two months living with Muslims has given us friendships that continue to this day. But a connecting point for me with people of other faiths, and in this case, specifically Muslims, has been the environment. And what the Lord's done in my life is he's taken that first passion and that first interest in conservation and, and environmental things and he's fusing it with the other burden that he's given me for communicating clearly the biblical faith to Muslims. And as I met with the Muslims there in that school, we learned of a lecture that was taking place on something called permaculture. We were all interested in sustainable agriculture or biological agriculture and living systems, sustainability at large. And this talk was recommended to us and so we went along to that and it was September last year that my wife and I stepped out of full-time ministry to go back to Australia and get further education in this field for the purpose of developing a tent-making skill that can get me into countries that I otherwise would not be able to get into. And it gives me a skill in which I can serve others so that they can see Jesus. And maybe like I did, desire to learn of him when they see him in others in the, the developing work and, and aid work. And so just months after finishing that education, no, days after finishing that education, my wife and I boarded a plane to the Middle East and we found ourselves in this Islamic setting. And... What I shared that night with the, the students and the faculty of this seminary gave me opportunity to do an interview for the school magazine there. And they interviewed me from 9.30 till the wee hours of the morning. And when they asked me if they could interview me, I wasn't sure if it was about sustainable agriculture and permaculture or if it was about my faith. But it became very obvious very quickly that it was my faith that they were interested in. 
because when I was given 10 minutes to share with that unique audience whatever was on my heart, guess what I chose to speak about? It wasn't permaculture, it was my faith. And I was able to build a relationship over the three weeks that we were there with the translator. And it wasn't until the last night that I was in that country that he began to ask me questions about my faith. Now, my wife, she chose to wore the, the conservative dress that was there, which was the burqa, the fully black outfit where all you can see is the eyes. She'd chosen that. And the respect that that gained us in the community gave me access and relationships that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And there's a lesson there for, for the young people here, especially you young brothers. The wife that you prayerfully choose can build up or tear down your ministry. And so I'd encourage you to prayerfully choose when you're making that decision. Now, I was able to build a relationship with this translator and at 1am in the morning, we had to end our discussion about faith because I still had to pack my bags and both of our wives had fallen asleep in the other room waiting for us to finish talking. But we agreed that when he returned to Australia, he was from Australia over there studying, that we would continue this conversation because he developed an interest in how we understood Jesus because of the differences that he saw in, in our lives from other Christians that he knew. And he also had developed an interest in learning the prophetic warnings that I spoke of before that larger audience. And so I want to commend to you the blessings that come from interacting with people of other faiths and cultures. The things that you see, the things that you learn, the questions they ask of you give you a new perspective, helping you to see relevance in our message and to study it deeper and to grow in your understanding. And I also want to commend to you what Spirit of Prophecy calls welfare ministry. Some people use welfare ministry or humanitarian work, abolitionist movements and whatnot as an end in themselves. But they're legitimate ways that we can get involved and partner with people of other faiths to build relationships for a greater purpose. That's been my experience and I think there's a lot of people in this room and in this audience that are talented and have things to share in that area. We can't all be in full-time ministry, but we can all be tent makers. And there's a world to win out there yet. As I've prayed and prepared for this message, a real burden has come upon me to see and do whatever I can to help revive a missionary culture in our church. And there are four things that I've seen in the book of Acts and that I read about in the spirit of prophecy. And as I look back over my own experience, I see the Lord has led me through these four activities. And these four activities are what made the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts, a missionary movement that we should still be. See, revival and reformation is not an end in itself. The capstone or the finish line or the fruit of revival and reformation is missions. And even evangelism, ministering to people locally who may have heard of the gospel before or is hearing of it for a second time, is part of a bigger picture. And that's of the whole world learning about biblical faith. And these four things are these. The first is prayer. Spirit of Prophecy poetically says 
that our prayers should follow the servants of God like a sharp sickle into the harvest field. Now, why do I think that a missionary culture needs to be revived in our church? Well, let me demonstrate by asking you this. How many of you here regularly pray for a missionary that's working amongst unreached people groups? By a show of hands, how many of you regularly pray for a missionary? Put them up high. Not to embarrass people, not to boast, but just so we can see that we are not what the book of Acts church is. They were of one accord, they were praying together in the upper room, and that's why they got the Spirit. And we need the Spirit for this work. The second is offerings, and people are kind of shy to talk about money. But my experiences with Muslims and with bartering in Islamic countries has gotten me over that social faux pas. And I want to talk to you about money. See, the sanctuary service in the Old Testament was the vehicle for evangelism and for missions for the Hebrew people. And we learn as a, in a study of the sanctuary that the Hebrew people gave up to one-fourth of their income for the sustaining and the work of the sanctuary. And if you read in Patriarchs and Prophets the chapter on tithes and offerings, Ellen White says that when you read of this, you would think that it would bring the people to poverty. But on the contrary, the faithful observance of these regulations was one of the conditions of their prosperity. She goes on to say that the work of the gospel, as it widens, requires greater provisions to sustain it than was called for anciently. And this makes the law of tithes and offerings of even more urgent necessity now than in the Hebrew economy. Now hear that. One-fourth of the income of the Hebrew people was to go to the sanctuary so that the message could go to the world. And as the work grows, the resources required grows. Again, not to boast, but just to exhort you to good works, maybe, to encourage you. I can personally testify that this is true. When I read this, months after being baptised, I committed in prayer to give one quarter of my meagerly Bible worker salary to missions through tithe and offering. And for seven years as a Bible worker and as someone in a faith-based ministry, on a small stipend, I never went without. And I committed to do that until I got married when I would prayerfully reconsider that commitment with my wife. In 1912, Adventists gave 3% of their income to missions. So for every $1,000 that an Adventist made, they gave $30 to missions. In the year 2010, every $1,000 that an Adventist made, $3.50 made it into missions. Do I need to say anything more to convince us that in order for us to hasten the second coming of Christ, we need to do something in our church, we need to do something personally to revive the missionary culture that saw in the lifetime of the early apostles the message go to the whole world, to every creature. 
We need to pray. We need to give. And there's another example. There's a model in the book of Acts, and it's reiterated in Spirit of Prophecy in the book Evangelism on page 569, where this model for missionary work is given. She says that in God's providence, he has brought people to our very door that they might receive the message for this time and return to their kinsfolk and friends in their country of origin and share it with them. I want to give some of you a vision for the work that you can do in finishing the Great, Con- the, the, the great Commission and reaching unreached people groups from right here in America. How many of you would be willing to move to Kabul, Afghanistan and give your life to missions? I see one hand, praise the Lord. I see a few, praise the Lord. But how many more of you would be willing to move to Fremont, California, the second largest Afghani city in the world? How many people here would move to California? Yeah, I could, I could be convinced to move to California a lot quicker than I could be convinced to move to, to Afghanistan. There is opportunity at your door to get involved in reaching unreached people groups. Everyone can pray. Everyone can give. Even without you moving yourself and your family to foreign mission fields, if you're awake to the opportunities that God is giving you to be a part of the Great Commission, then you can do something here. Ministering to immigrants, helping refugees get settled. You can do a powerful work. One of our Muslim friends in in Michigan, we were doing Bible studies with her, and she would share everything that she learned from us with her father, who's from Syria. When my wife and I had opportunity to go to the Middle East, we made a point of visiting him. And when we walked into his home, recipients of that traditional Arab hospitality, it was like picking up our friendship with his daughter. And the other fourth point, of course, is going as a foreign missionary. Now, I'm going to make an appeal here, but I'm not unrealistic about this. There was 120 disciples in the upper room when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place. But only a handful of those 120 names are ever mentioned in the book of Acts as going abroad and reaching unreached people groups. Many of them were involved in evangelism. Peter, James and John stayed behind and they would witness to the people that came to the religious holidays and festivals and they would take part in that third point by doing that, meeting people here in God's providence and they took the message back, much like Philip with the Ethiopian. But only a few names are mentioned that went to Asia and went to Macedonia and went far to reach unreached people groups. And so when I make this appeal, I'm not expecting that you all come forward. I don't want you to all come forward. Because an appeal in a church or in a group that has a missionary culture looks like this. See, in 1910, D.L. Moody made an appeal for mission volunteers and 100 people came to the altar and 100 people went. What an appeal looks like in a church that needs a revival of missionary culture is GYC 2004. An appeal is made for people to give a tithe of their lives and 204 people come to the front of this convention. Maybe some of you came forward. And guess how many went eight years later? One. 
We need a revival of missionary culture in our church because the Lord wants to come. One of my favorite lyrics written by a friend says, if we can hurt and feel and love, how much more can God above? And day after day, there is suffering in this earth and we have a part to play in finishing that, hastening the second coming of Christ. But what are we doing? As GYC, we have an opportunity to lead by example, to demonstrate to our home churches, to the world church, what a missionary culture looks like. And so with just a short time to go here, I just want to ask for people that would be willing to do long-term missions, to stand and come to the front. I'm talking three to seven years of your life. You don't have to come forward to make me feel better. I made an appeal for missions one time in a church here in North America. And it was only at the very end, one little girl stood up. Not a single adult, not a single young person stood up. And I rejoiced for that because I'd prefer to have one little girl stand up than 204 people come forward and make a commitment that they don't keep. Now, as you come to the front, if this is something the Lord has been speaking to you about, if this is something that you're serious about, the GYC missions team is at the front here. And they are committed to helping you find a way and a place to serve unreached people groups. And I want you to turn around and look at this audience if you've come forward. And if you're willing to pray for these people as you learn about how God's leading them and to give sacrificially and prayerfully consider even giving a quarter of your income to support missions to the unreached, I want you to stand and show your support for them. But if you stand for this commitment, the Lord sees it and he holds you to it. You have to answer for it. This is the kind of response I expected from GYC. But when we look back in the history of the movement, why don't we see more missions? Let's use this as a turning point to revive a missionary culture in the church. And let's see all these decisions with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, you are a great God and you've called us to a great commission and we need your spirit. We are part of a world church that, Lord, is no worse off than us. Lord, I pray that the people that have come to the front here would keep their commitment and they would prayerfully be led by you into a place where people have never seen and heard the biblical picture of you. And the people that have stood, I pray that you would bless their businesses, bless their their careers, keep them faithful in their prayer life and even lay upon them, Lord, a commitment to move to a place where they can minister to immigrants and help refugees settle and, and be a part of the Great Commission that way. Lord, I pray that this message and the decisions that are made here would be sealed by your spirit and that it would be the beginning of the revival of a missionary culture in our church. And I pray these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.